This episode of Film Spotting is sponsored by MUBI, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day over at MUBI, curators will introduce a new title. You'll have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, and you get all this for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try MUBI free for a month. Just go to MUBI.com. That's MUBI.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. And if you're looking for a couple of ideas for movies to seek out, Stanley Donnan's Charade currently playing, Takeshi Kitano's Outrage, Lars von Trier's Melancholia, the Catherine Breyad double bill of Bluebeard and The Sleeping Beauty, and Takeshi Miike's fight epic, 13 Assassins. There's four movies there I need to see. Four movies for me as well. I can recommend both Melancholia and 13 Assassins. If you want to seek any of those movies out, go to movie.com slash filmspotting and you can try movie free for a month. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. And let's face it, Adam, you're not doing this for the sake of art. You're doing this because you're scared to death, like the rest of us, that you don't matter. And you know what? You're right. You don't. I don't know what I'd do without your pre-show pep talks, Josh. Hey, whatever it takes. <laughs> Emma Stone there from Birdman. Between Stone, Michael Keaton, and Edward Norton, Josh and I can at least agree that Birdman is a film full of memorable performances, and performances is the subject of this week's top five, our favorite supporting and lead turns of 2014. Plus, the latest from the director of Happy Go Lucky and Topsy Turvy, Mike Lee's Mr. Turner. Featuring, guess what, a great lead performance. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 2 million high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For new accounts, take 20% off footage-only clips by going to Shutterstock.com and use offer code FILM115. listening to film spotting and apparently i'm resolving for 2015 that i'm not important and i just need to get used to it don't forget you're also scared to death that you don't matter (laughs) indeed but hopefully it matters to everyone out there listening who we choose as our favorite performances of 2014 that is later in the show but first our review of mr turner in which british director mike lee forgoes kitchen sink realism in favor of 19th century romanticism you're still making your nice little pictures mr turner Make a fine subject for you to paint. Oh, is that so? Oh, I shall cogitate upon it. <laughs> when I experience a masterpiece such as yours, I'm struck by the clarity with which you have captured the moment. Why on earth would he go and do that? He's ruined a masterpiece. I do think it's fitting, Adam, that we're reviewing a Mike Lee movie on the same show where we're focusing on the best performances of 2014. One of the things Lee is known for is an intense and immersive rehearsal process that coaxes deeply lived-in performances out of his actors. As a result, Lee characters are usually indelible, from Sally Hawkins' irrepressible poppy in Happy Go Lucky to Imelda Staunton's drained Vera Drake. Lee's new film, Mr. Turner, a biopic of sorts of 19th century landscape painter J.M.W. Turner, offers a number of striking performances, but we should probably start our conversation with the titular turn given by Timothy Spall. 
an invaluable character actor who's given the spotlight here. Spall is something, at least to me, like England's Paul Giamatti. Yeah. And maybe Mr. Turner will be his sideways. He's memorable in it, to be sure, portraying Turner as a grunting, piggish man who is nonetheless capable of producing beautiful works of art. Given the emphasis, though, on verbal tics and his omnipresent scowl, I'm wondering, Adam, if Spall's performance reminded you of another recent turn that neither of us was too fond of, Steve Carell's mannered John DuPont in Foxcatcher. Or do you regard it higher, up there with the many formidable performances for which Lee's films have become known? Well, it's a really interesting comparison, one I have to admit I didn't think about at all as I watched Mr. Turner. But both are, of course, playing real-life figures, as you noted, though not well-known figures. These aren't characters that audiences would come in with a lot of preconceived notions about. And Spall definitely is mannered. He grunts, certainly. He huffs. He mumbles. He scowls his way through. There are a variety through. of grunts. I mean, he's there not are. just doing the same grunts. Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. He does scowl his way through a lot of this movie. And he certainly says a lot more than John DuPont does in Foxcatcher. He's got an amazing vocabulary that he does employ from time to time. But he's similarly quiet in a lot of scenes. And he's definitely socially awkward, I would say, as well. Though he can connect with people in a way that DuPont certainly doesn't in Foxcatcher. But the fact is, they do both spend a lot of their respective movies observing. So you're right to compare them, but there are substantial differences. The short answer to your question is this is, for me, a much better performance and overall a much better movie. Because as you look at them, where there was an overwhelming inertia, and I'm hoping that I'm using that term correctly this time, in reference to a review from 2005, some people may (laughs) recall that from Sin City, there's an inertia to Carell's performance and to Foxcatcher overall And in contrast to that, Spall's Turner is dynamic. There's anger and joy and awe and love and sadness. And there are times where he steals himself and he draws himself totally inward and times where he really does, as I said, connect with other people around him by being intimate and by being incredibly vulnerable. And just throughout the whole film, what we see from him is the full range of human emotions on display in that character, Mr. Turner, and in Spall's performance. Also, when he is withdrawn, when we're watching him grunt and huff and mumble and scowl, there's always a sense of what those mannerisms and gestures are communicating. Mm -hmm. And rarely are they communicating the same thing. I think about actually, I don't know if you've seen it, but the famous scene from The Wire season one where McNulty and Bunk are investigating a crime scene. And the only bit of dialogue, like in the whole three and a half minute scene, is the F word. But they never use the F word the same way. It imparts something different every time one of the characters says it. That's Spall with his grunts. I really do think you could go through this movie and kind of translate each and every grunt because it says something different. It says something unique. Yeah, it says something every time that we can actually interpret and understand. So there are a lot of reasons why I really, really kind of adore this movie, actually now having seen it a second time to get ready for this review. But the Timothy Spall performance is certainly a big factor. Yeah, the two variations that come to mind as you're talking about them are the harumph that he gives maybe to his housekeeper early on, mm-hmm. and then the a harumph he gives at a deathbed, let's just say a deathbed, and then yeah. just wipes his nose, and it's a similar noise, mm-hmm but obviously means something completely different there. I do think it's a really strong performance, and it has those elements. Let's just say it has the elements of variety that any full-bodied performance needs that we didn't find in Carell's. And, And here, one of those that I really appreciated was the way he gave us a sense of Turner as a man of rare talent. Mm -hmm. A lot of times in biopics about artists, we're told how great they are, or another character will go on and on about how great their art is and kind of serve that up to us. And here, 
Spall embodies that because we get a sense. He speaks. You talked about the the uh, the different words that he's able to pull out when he doesn't feel like grunting. He speaks so eloquently, not only about his own work, but about the art of painting itself. And he does that not in a speechifying way. It's just it's when he does become passionate mm-hmm. about something he can go into. And, and then we in the audience, in turn, will then learn about not only painting, but his art and what moves there him is and what he's trying to a do. a scene fairly early on where he's like speaking to the Academy and he's just boring everyone one to death while he's talking about color. Yeah, that's that's when he's like asked to explain it, yeah. right? But yeah. but in those more domestic, mm-hmm. casual scenes, you can get a grasp of it. For and, sure. And where it really came to the fore for me, and it's one of the central themes of the film, one of the things that most appealed to me is this idea of him bridging the gap between romanticism to impressionism. And we get the sense from the picture, at least, that he's vexed by the onset of industrialization, or as they say at one point, uh, steel and steam. You know, this is a guy who's built a career on painting uh, seascapes and sailing ships, and he knows those things. They're familiar to him. But when he sees a steamboat chugging by or a train, this is, as it was for a lot of people Mm -hmm. at that time, world-changing. And for him, the question is, how am I going to incorporate that into my art? And it seems to spur him to this. It seems to open him up a little right. bit towards these. His paintings become less recognizable figures and these vortexes of light um, and swaths of paint. And I really liked how Spall made that a personal journey for this character and not just, you know, a, a phase in art history. Yeah, I think you're dead on with everything you said. And also, I think the way... Dick Pope, the cinematographer, and Mike Lee work together here to show the world the way he must have perceived it is another key factor. And we'll get to that. But I do want to follow up on what you were saying and how this movie differs in a lot of ways from a traditional biopic. And one of those keys is that there are just none of those signposts here where you expect that you're going to get the key sort of greatest hits of J.M.W. Turner and get everything you need to know in these nice little digestible bites. There's a story at one point where he's talking to Mrs. Booth, who he ends up having a relationship with and her husband at the time who is still alive and they're just talking and he imparts a story the elder mr booth about how he used to be aboard a ship and it was a slave trading ship and the horrors he saw later in the film we learn that mr turner has painted a picture that kind of graphically depicts this scene out at sea where there's a illness on board the ship and they just dump the men out to the water and he's trying to bring that kind of horror to this beautiful landscape, this seascape. And there's never really any sense that, oh, he's processing that. He's going to use it later. It just kind of comes up. It just is part of the story that that must have sunk in for him in some way. And the movie doesn't draw any further attention to those kind of things. And you're certainly not going to come away from the movie knowing all of Mr. Turner's most famous paintings by sight or by name. I don't think you're going to come away knowing what drove him psychologically as an artist, which is what most biopics about artists are really fundamentally trying to do is kind of explain what gave them their talent or what drove their talent. This really does simply try to show us how this artist funneled what he saw into his work. There's at one point even to get to what you were saying about impressionism, a part where his approach to art does change. And the movie doesn't announce that. He doesn't announce it. He doesn't say, oh, I'm going in a new direction with my art. He's just an artist who starts to take in the world in a different way. And it does translate to his work. And it is that train scene in particular where, you know, the old wooden ships are gone at sea. We're seeing the trains 
covering the landscape now. He's watching them go. And you see the smoke or maybe it's steam billowing out of the top. And there's that little circular puff that Lee and Dick Pope capture that from his point of view, you can see that he's eyeing it. And it's this case where it's something man-made. It's unnatural, if you will, but it's producing something random, something beautiful in nature. And it's also obscuring. This is the key, really. And I didn't really get this until the second time. That smoke is obscuring his view of nature. And as a man who at one point says about another artist, he was a man of his time. You get the sense that Turner was trying to reflect his time. He simply didn't know any other way. So when he sees that, his new sense of translating nature to the canvas is of this time, nature is now obscured by things like smoke and steam or whatever coming from these engines. That's how you have to represent nature now. And how about the cinematography here by Dick Pope and, you know, with Mike Lee's eye as well? I don't think Lee, he's probably one of those filmmakers who's underrated for his visual style because we do associate his films with, as I said, strong performances mm-hmm. and maybe the subject matter, often, you know, working class conditions or, or mundane everyday yeah. tales. Uh, there are, you know, exceptions and Mr. Turner would be one of them. But we think of those things first. We don't think of him as a visual stylist. And I bet going back and Putting that at the fore of my mind and watching his films, I would notice a lot more now. But this is a showcase. It is. And they have the excuse to be Mm -hmm. a showcase because it's obviously intertwined with the theme. But the ways that they mimic, we do get enough glimpses of Turner's work to get a sense of what some of his work look like, at least. For sure. It's not complete, as you said. But the way they're able to mimic his brood, the brooding forcefulness of nature that he captures in the paintings we see and do that with their camera lens. How about that moment where it's a match cut from a detail oh, yeah. shot of waves and it cuts to a cliffside? It took me maybe two or three seconds until I realized we'd left the canvas and we're in the real world because they've done it For so sure. seamlessly. And, you know, that's a direct match. But really, so much of the film alternates back and forth that way. It does. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film from director Mike Lee about the life of famed British painter J.M.W. Turner. It stars Timothy Spall. And we're talking specifically about the cinematography because you're right. That is my favorite thing about the movie, even more so than Spall's performance. And it's rare in the film that we get any strict point of view shots. If you think about the opening scene, I think it's supposed to be in Holland and there's some windmills and he's looking at the landscape, but we don't know that. We just see this beautiful landscape. We see some people walking by, but then the camera spies up on the hill, Mr. Turner sketching it. And in the beauty of the wide frame there, not just in the opening scene, but throughout the movie in a lot of these sequences, lots of long shots showing people and objects in full and the use of color, the use of sun, certainly, which is a common theme Mm -hmm. here in the movie keeps going back to that most frames do certainly look like they could be turner canvases and so what lee is doing i think is rather than tell us about turner's art as we touched on having people expound on it or him expound on his philosophy of art we learn so much more simply by being shown how he must have seen the world and josh my two favorite cuts of the year you already spoiled one of them but my two favorite cuts in any movie this year happen in this film the first one is a jump cut And I think it's the only one in the movie because this is a film, it really stands out because it is so elegantly shot and edited. But it's his first visit to Margate, where it's this great seaside resort, kind of a tourist 
town, it seems, and he goes to be inspired, and he ends up booking a room at this boarding house, and he goes upstairs, and there's this beautiful window that looks out over the water. Clearly, that's what drew him to that scene, and he stands at the end of the scene where he's talking to Mrs. Booth. He stands at the window, and he has a bowl of water, and we see him getting out his art supplies, and it cuts quickly to another shot of him in front of a window, same view, sitting at a different table with a plate of food. So it's cutting to a different room in the house. The position of his body is slightly different, standing versus sitting, but it's in the same part of the frame. And the camera position is the same. It's dead on straight with the window. So that when there's a cut, it feels like a jump. It feels like he's in the same spot, more or less, and there was an edit. And it really does emphasize his fascination with the view of the sea, right? It draws attention to that portal out to nature that he's looking to, but it also emphasizes the frame in general, where the window becomes like a painting on the wall to us. The way we view art and the way he views the world are the same. And also, of course, how you see the world through a frame, whether it's a camera lens or a canvas or even a window, that does change how you view and perceive the world. I think, again, it just draws attention to the fact that that's what he's doing every time he translates nature onto that canvas for us. And for me, I think the the landscapes as well that Pope and Lee provide, they also offer a contrast for what are really a lot of horrible people in this movie. Yeah. I mean, we, there's a lot of ugliness. There's, there's a lot of ugliness from Turner himself, but this is not just one of those. A lot of artist biopics are, look how terrible the man was and look how beautiful his art was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and this gets into that a little bit because there's certainly a contrast there between how Turner behaves in much of the film and what he produces. But it extends even in this movie, interestingly, to a lot of the people around him uh, from the woman who we don't know if she's a former wife, but the mother of his two grown mother children. Mother of two children. Yeah. who shows up occasionally to just screech at him. His father is portrayed affectionately, but also somewhat, and here's where maybe Lee's working class concerns come in, as as someone who's uh, from a different world than this high-class art society that Turner has found himself in. Uh, and how about the scenes with uh, the patron of Turner's, played by Joshua McGuire, who's, you know, he supports him in his move towards a different style of art, but he'll also go on and on about gooseberry. Is this I mean, that younger guy? Yeah, the younger the guy. He's, who's, he's basically I think Mike Lee's version of like the basement dwelling film blogger. I think so. <laughs> He's getting in some it's jabs just, at him. It's just, yeah, it's very funny. But another sort of, uh, basically a lot of people who don't deserve the art that he produces, who can't appreciate it well. Maybe. But you've mentioned her. The the saving grace in terms of the people in this film, mm-hmm. at least for me, Mrs. Booth, played by Marion Bailey. Yeah. And she appears a number of times, as you said, early on when he does visit Margate and stays at her house. She's married then to an older man. And they do connect somehow. That conversation you talk about is very interesting because it's not only the story, the awful story of the slave ship, but they try to get away from that, the three of them, and talk about something else. So she asks about a time in his childhood that he spent there uh, going to school. And that turns, it comes back to death. That turns to an illness and he lost some friends. But I think there's something there about how she handles such misery. And and she's, you know, a long suffering woman. This guy in this scene is her second husband at that point. Correct. Mm -hmm. Um, But she handles it with sort of a matter of factness of that's how life is. And I think there's a match there, at least for Turner, in terms of how he deals with such things, too. And, And that leads to a blossoming relationship that's really something special and brings out yet another side of him towards the end of the film. Mrs. Boo, would you be so kind as to look out of the window? What am I looking at? From the tip of your nose, to the bridge, to the curve of your brow, 
You put me in mind of a Greek sculpture I'm familiar with, of Aphrodite, goddess of love. <laughs> no. Who's ever said that about my nose before? <laughs> this old snow. Hmm. Truth to tell, my eyes aren't so good these days. So when I do look in the looking glass, I'd be glad I cannot see so well. <laughs> when I peruse myself in the looking glass, I see a gargoyle. Well, you'll be fishing for compliments. And my old Mary used to say, then what fish for compliments don't get none. <laughs> Besides, tis what's within a person that do matter. <laughs> One of the ways I think they connect is there is a line that comes up multiple times in the film, and they both say it at one point, which is something like, it is what it is, and mm. we are what we are. They seem to understand how the world works, and yet they try to go on yeah. anyway, and they have found a way to go on. And his way is to obviously focus on nature. As you noted earlier, he doesn't really spend a lot of time putting people in these yeah. landscapes, and you do wonder if there's a sense of him not just having disdain. It's not just a case of him being someone who hates everyone, but I think he sees the ugliness in himself. He certainly does have a sense of self-loathing. Calls himself a gargoyle. Right. So he applies that not just in looking down on other people. He looks down on himself as well, and he sees how ugly and how chaotic the world is, and those landscapes are at least his way to try to maybe apply a little bit of order to it. And you're right, that relationship is so key and that performance is great. But there's another performance I really do love and another relationship in this movie and really gets back to one of the larger aspects of this film I really enjoy, which is just the overall attention to detail. And I noticed it in characters like Dorothy Atkinson playing the maid, Hannah. She obviously just kind of dotes on him and works around the house supporting Mr. Turner and then when he's alive, his father. And seeing it a second time, I noticed how you get these little moments where, for example, when Timothy Spall comes back from that opening visit, and then they have a conversation, and she says something about how we were worried about you, we heard of some kind of catastrophe, Mm -hmm. and your dad was very worried. So then Mr. Turner, up in his art room, painting something, the father comes home, the maid sort of lets him walk up and discover that his son is home. And just the fact that she wants it to be a surprise and wants there to be this sort of joyous moment where they reunite, and then Lee shows that happen off screen. She stands outside the room as they reunite, and she gets this kind of face of pleasure. You know, she reacts with joy because for her to see those two have that moment together brings her joy. And the fact that he shows us those moments. He would rather show us those kind of little character moments and give us insight into who all these people are is really one of the overall strengths of this movie. And that relationship overall, we could get into it. It's it's troubling in a lot of ways because there's a sexual component to it where he's really using her. But she clearly has affection for him and doesn't seem to mind it. And at the end of it, Michael Phillips, in his review, he really nailed it. He said the housekeeper Hannah becomes the story's tragic figure, and it's to Lee's and Atkinson's credit that that pathos is fully earned. It's earned in scenes like that at the beginning. She's terribly tragic because, as you said, there is very much an element of wanting to please him, even despite the occasional abuse that she suffers. And I also like how Lee continues with her and brings her back towards the end of this film as well sure. because it's a character where his life goes that could have been just forgotten but but he does allow her those crucial moments towards the end yeah and unfortunately i really wanted to get into that cut a little bit more but i will basically just repeat what you said it is this magical moment where he is at an art gallery kind of the academy mm-hmm. it seems as if he's been for this painting anyway been put off to the side the side in the, hall the right. ante room or whatever <laughs> yeah. and he's been kind of stirred up by this character hayden who's 
bemoaning all the boring portrait artists in there and he's doing real art and he's furiously working away. He's altering his painting. He's spitting on it. He's splattering paint. It's almost Pollock-esque what he's doing way ahead of Jackson Pollock, obviously. And you're right. There's this moment where, as we just see in profile, Mr. Turner painting, and we can see the painting in the shot, but not very clearly. And then it cuts to what appears to be the painting. It could be a close-up. It could be a close-up of the painting where it seems to be rocks, some kind of cliff, and green streaks of paint dripping down that are forming moss. And then next to it, there's another cliff that's a little bit lighter, and we see the white paint and the green paint drizzling. But then, of course, the camera tilts down, (laughs) and we see Mr. Turner, and we realize that he's walking in nature so and it, it caught you there too was a for, oh, for, yeah it's it's amazing and it really is it's not even so much a match cut because it cuts to nature it doesn't cut on the painting it's this really fascinating bit of visual deception it is but it's all about playing on our perceptions the fact that we saw some of the painting in those previous shots and the colors were similar then tricks our eyes into thinking that It's the same when it goes to that mountain, but what it ultimately does, the same as that other jump cut, is it just does link Turner's art and his eye for nature, really. And it's it's magical. It's a yeah. magical bit of cinema. It really is. And, you know, the the cinematography throughout, usually you go to landscapes when, you know, you've, we need some beauty in this film. We need some, you know, a pretty shot now. Let's give, let's give the viewer something to look at. Um, but this, as you said, is just so integral to what the movie is about and what the, the painting is about and what mm-hmm. Turner's life is about that it really does work beautifully. Mr. Turner is out now in select cities. I believe it opened Christmas Day here in Chicago. But if you do get a chance to see it or you've already seen it and you agree or disagree with our takes, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. We'll get into our lists of the best performances of 2014 when we come back, plus the return of Massacre Theater. Somehow I don't think a month off from acting is going to make us any worse than usual. No. Stay with us. One more night in Omaha, bus stop just before the dawn, cold wind followed me somehow. Through parking lots and shopping malls Rinse my thoughts in alcohol Black clouds rolling over me Folks, just a quick reminder here that we're very pleased to be brought to you by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project. Josh, thinking about Mr. Turner, Mm -hmm. I decided to go over to Shutterstock.com and type in the word masterpieces. I got 513 video clip results, ranging from things including great architecture, great meals, cars, paintings, musical instruments, the whole gamut of 
human talent really on display there. Including the trailer for the rover. (laughs) Well played, sir. Well played. Whether for your website, advertisement, multimedia presentation, your tribute to the Rover website, you can find it at Shutterstock.com. You can choose from over 2 million high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. And they have flexible pricing. Choose between individual clips or video packs for the best deal. And they've got sophisticated tools so you can search and drill down by category, by clip resolution, contributor name, or by fun keywords like masterpieces. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. No credit card is needed. Just start an account, begin browsing Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like, and save video selections you find to your clip box. Once you decide to purchase, use offer code FILM115, and new accounts will receive 20% off only footage clips. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 20% off any video clips with a new account, use offer code FILM115. We thank Shutterstock for their support. Been so long since I've been gone Doubt if you'll know me at all Downpour Did I make you proud? Have you been drinking? Have you? Yeah, a little. Have you? A little bit. Have you been? A little bit. Oh, oh, okay. Welcome back to Film Spotting, a clip there from the best film of 2014, according to most people. That's the clip from the Lego movie where Wild Style confronts Emmett about his drinking. (laughs) I'd like to see that version. (laughs) Maybe that would be my number one film of 2014, Josh. Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Oh, of course. Yes. Of course. Currently leading our best of 2014 poll. Of course. Of course. It is by a fairly sizable margin. We're going to keep the poll up there another week just for kicks. We'll reveal the results on next week's show. And currently running second to Boyhood, Josh, not the Lego movie. No. But Other. Did you see Other this year? Other was fantastic. I think I have it at 26. Yeah. It does suggest then either that 2014 was a very strong year for movies or that the options we provided were completely inadequate. (laughs) And it is, in all seriousness, Definitely possible that at least one particular film should have been included in the poll options as it's running away with the other category. Really? Yeah, it's running away with this poll just like Boyhood is. If I said it, you'd go, oh, yes, of course. Yeah, probably. It did come up. I think on at least two lists in the top ten. Oh, okay. So we didn't ignore it. No, it's not a huge surprise, and we didn't ignore it, but we did leave it out of the poll and maybe should have included it. I think actually at the last minute we left it out. I want to say we even had a discussion, the four of us, with Scott Tobias and Michael Phillips, and at the last minute said, no, that one shouldn't be in there. Nobody saw it, and... As there long as is. we can blame them as well. Yeah, I think we can blame Michael Good. for that one. So there you go. If you do want to vote, it may seem a little bit meaningless, but come on, just for fun, you can vote now at filmspotting.net for your favorite film of 2014. In our bonus content, we are going to get to some of that if you have the Film Spotting app. More on the best of 2014 listener responses, Josh, to the best films. Okay. Some of them include mentions of boyhood, but there are other films that are not boyhood. Nice. In that conversation, we will get to in our bonus content. By the All way, the I info, liked boyhood quite a bit. Let's I know you repeat did. Just, that. just not enough. And not enough. We will constantly remind you of that here on the show. All the info you need about the Film Spotting bonus content is at filmspotting.net. Just click on apps. We are obviously sort of still looking back on 2014 here, even though we've progressed to 2015. We talked about Mr. Turner, a movie that did open at the end of the year, and we're sharing our favorite performances of 2014. We will look ahead at some point here as we get to our most anticipated movies of the year and some other 
January and February releases at some point. But, you know, this is that time of year where some of these films that came out at the tail end of the year, maybe just in New York and L.A., they're just being released and rolling out to cities. Selma, for example, just opened last week, I think, here in Chicago. Yeah, it seems like every weekend in January in Chicago will be one of the big films from last year opening. Yeah, so bear with us a little bit for at least a couple more weeks as we do reflect a little bit more on the year that was in movies. We will get to some 2015 stuff ahead, though. And one of those things we're going to get to after forsaking them, I think for the entire year of 2014, we had three marathons planned. We were going to do <laughs> we our... Do any. No, we didn't. We didn't. That's how rough of a year 2014 was for us that's, here that's behind the F. scenes. Yeah, it really, it was a fail, but you know what? We're going to try to make up for it this year. Setrajit Ray, we're going to talk about his films. John Cassavetti's in the mix. Elaine May in the mix. We are going to get to those in 2015. They're on the schedule. So unless... There's some other catastrophe, knock on the studio wood here. We're going to get to those. Formica. Yeah, actually, it's very nice Formica, though, here at the station. We will proceed with our marathons. They're already on the calendar. So if you want to start watching some of those films to get ready, the Apu trilogy, which we're we're opening with. We're doing Ray first. So you can find all those movies at filmspotting.net and click on the marathons link there. That's coming up, I think, at the end of the month. The last week of January is when we have the first one on the schedule. We got to just do it. We got to start. We have that to. way. We can't back out. Right, and you know we also are giving ourselves a little bit of leeway with some of this 2014 stuff because we aren't doing what we would normally be doing. Actually, this weekend, we had planned to do one of our rap parties, which we've done for the past two years at the main stage. Again, just kind of busy, too busy behind the scenes, and we were planning it. And at the last minute, we decided it just wasn't something we could pull off. We are though planning to do another summer live show. Might be at the Music Box, might be at the main stage. We haven't gotten that far ahead yet, but probably in July, going to do another live event like we did last year. It won't be a big 500th celebration, but it'll be a good time. It'll be just as fun, I promise. So, yeah, stick with us here, hopefully, through 2015. Also, want to take a moment, just a quick moment, to say happy birthday as we're taping this. It is the birthday of our producer, one of our producers here behind the scenes, Golden Joe Dassault. The actual day. Happy birthday, Joe. That's right. This show, as we always say, certainly does not go without him, so wanted to wish him that happy birthday. With that, let's show our love for Joe by doing some really bad acting. We're dedicating Massacre Theater to Joe. Sure. I love it. We're going to perform a scene. You get a chance at winning a prize. Last time, we massacred this. Of course. Who'd you think? Oh, well, then that's okay. Okay. Who, may I ask, are you? We're Rudolph and Hermie and Yukon Cornelius, sir. Who are you? I'm the official sentry of the Island of Misfit Toys. A jack-in-the-box or a sentry? Yes, my name is... Don't tell me. Jack. No, Charlie. That was Alfie Scop as Charlie in the Box, Billy Mae Richards as Rudolph, Paul Souls as Hermie, and Larry D. Mann as Yukon Cornelius in the 1964 Rankin and Bass holiday classic, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It was directed by Larry Romer, written by Romeo Muller. We did that massacre several weeks ago, back before Christmas, on episode 517 of the show, our pre-top 10 best of the rest of 2014, along with the review of Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie, Inherent Vice. I hope we didn't depress anyone by playing that clip. Are, are you like me if you hear Christmas music well after Christmas? It brings you, you back. Kind of, it, no, it just makes me sad. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Apologies if that happened. We do to apologize to our audience there. Dan Maxell Crosby from White River Junction, Vermont, writes and says, I'm writing on behalf of my four year old son, Dexter, who, when I played this clip for him, said it was a mashup between Rudolph and the Lego movie. Smart kid. This led to a conversation explaining that you may have changed some names in the scene and places to make this reindeer game a little less obvious. Dexter is indeed a bright one. Happy holidays, Dan says. Thank you. Happy holidays as well to you, Dan, and to Dexter. Miguel Foote from Ottawa, Ontario, wrote in, As a kid, I always thought it was unfair that Charlie in the Box was sent to the island of Misfit Toys solely because of his name. The scene was no doubt chosen because we're in the middle of the Christmas season, or were. And I'm going to take a stab and say that Adam was trying to channel Edwin. Am I right? Keep up the great work and have some happy holidays. McGill is right. Is he? As were other listeners. Basically, as I was doing my rendition of that scene there, it wasn't Alfie Scott I was hearing. It was Edwin. In your head. Now that... Yeah. That's the uncle, right, from Mary Poppins? I believe so. Okay. Yeah, I believe so. Boy, but Edwin was dead on, Ben. Oh, nice work. Well, thank you. Thank you. I don't know. Is that nice work? <laughs> you, you have a killer Edwin. You, yes. That's going to come in handy. I'm sure it will. Josh, reach into the film spotting hat. Not nearly as brimming as it should have been. Maybe those Lego references threw everybody off in the scene. Reach in, nevertheless, pick out this week's winner. The winner is Colin Hinckley from Brooklyn, New York. Congratulations, Colin. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t shirt. Imagine that director telling me I'm overacting in the first scene and I don't know what I'm saying. See, you know what I'm doing, Cheechas? I'm working on a superior lap. Like, ha ha ha! Hee hee hee! All right, no more of this TV holiday classic stuff. We're going to really see if there are some true cinephiles out there, Josh, as we get to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. And a little bit of info behind the scenes here about the scene. Four people actually in the scene in the movie. There's a third voice in this little part that we have segmented, but it's not really crucial to the selection. We've just excised it. Okay. So I don't care how much I revere this writer and director, hint, hint, uh-huh. for longtime listeners out there. We're just going to take that line out. You've completely confused me. So okay. I don't know where I'm going to go now. <laughs> I don't think we need to give you the tie-in either. At least the one major tie-in, probably going to be pretty obvious here if you've been listening to the show so far and as we get into the scene. So, Josh, I know you've been studying. You've been rehearsing here for all I, of 20 seconds. I did seven seconds of research. Yes. Are you ready? <laughs> sure. I'm going to give you the action. And... Action. Please forget. I don't have an interest in selling anything. I ask if you have something with a little puce in it, you gotta fly off the handle. I'm not interested in what your interior decorator would think, okay? Well, I can't commit to anything without consulting her first. That's what I have her for, okay? This is degrading. You don't buy paintings to blend in with the sofa. It's not a sofa, it's an ottoman. And scene. <laughs> you know what? By the end there. This is degrading. You had it. It usually takes me four or five lines to get to it. <laughs> if only it was a little bit longer. If you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline, Monday, January 19th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Rhythm section out first. Tanner, the kit is a f-ing tonal catastrophe. Get it in tune, all right? Rhythm and soloist, bar 45. We're going to pick up the tempo there, all right? Bar 106, brass. Do not forget we sharp that ninth. Everybody remember, Lincoln Center and its ilk use these competitions to decide who they're interested in and who they're not. And I am not going to have my reputation in that department tarnished by a bunch of f-ing limp, f-ing sour note, flattered on their girlfriend's flexible tempo dip sh-t. Got it? A little J.K. Simmons from Whiplash to help us transition into our top five supporting 
performances of the year. We're going to get to our lead performances here in a little bit. And Simmons is one of those guys who's getting a lot of attention, a lot of Oscar buzz. I get it. It's a towering performance, Josh. Was it big enough? Was it good enough to make your top five? Well, the way we've ranked these is kind of a mess, yeah, right? Because we're blending them all together. I'll say this. He he was on my, when I voted mm-hmm. in various groups, I did have him among that group. I forget okay. exactly where he fell, but yeah, for supporting performances. I just think, yeah, it's it's showy, but it works for the film. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's showy to a purpose. So. Yeah, it is. And we're going to get to, as you said, a little bit messy here, how we're going to do it. Not really our normal kind of top five procedure. We've combined some picks here, or at least I have, and we're going to rush through a few of the initial picks. And we're also combining gender here. We're not going to separate by male or female necessarily. We're just going to focus on our favorite supporting performances of the year. What do you have to start? Yeah, I'll give you my five through three supporting performances right here. And I'm going to start with Gary Poulter from Joe. This is the David Gordon Green film in which he played this abusive alcoholic dad, uh, a really villainous, terrifying figure. I described him uh, when I wrote about it as a haunting specter who wanders the streets and railroad tracks seemingly in a fog, at least until his cravings suddenly give him a moment of foul clarity. The really remarkable thing about this performance is that Poulter was a Mm -hmm. non-professional. There were many non-professional actors in the film that uh, Green worked with alongside Nicolas Cage, and he just blew me away with what he brought to the screen. Not just a naturalness, but a real full character. The the deeply unfortunate thing here is that Poulter did die shortly after filming, so it's the only performance of his that we have. Maybe the villain of the year. Could be, although... Although, okay. I have another villain I want okay. to get to. Uh, number four here, supporting performances. Agatha Kulesha, I've talked about a number of times in Ida. She's the worldly aunt to the young nun of the title. She's got a great entrance in this film, answering the door to her apartment upon Ida's knock. With a cigarette in hand, there's jazz bursting from a record player, and there's a guy dressing in the room. A very different world than this nun had come from, and uh, I just love this performance. Number three, Rene Russo in Nightcrawler. That flicker of defeat. That crosses her face during the uh, awful date she has with Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it you know, it's when we know that she knows she's trapped. Oh, yeah. It's great. And couldn't have had a better segue, Josh, into my number five. And you know I had to cheat a little bit here. For the record, as we talk about different critics groups and different ballots, you know, I did have to limit myself to not only five per category. Sometimes I had to limit myself to three per category. I found a way to power through and do it. But is you know this what? what the whiteboard on the wall is for? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> But this isn't one of those ballots, and I'm not restricted in that way, so we're going to have some messy fun. My number five is a couple of familiar faces who surprised me this year. And the first one I'm going to mention is, in fact, Rene Russo in Nightcrawler. Mm. And really the surprise is simply that, not that, that she, she showed around? me something. Yes, not that she showed me something <laughs> I didn't think she was capable of, but really how relevant has she been, frankly? And she is married to Dan Gilroy, the writer and director here, gave her a juicy part, which is great. I hope she gets more juicy parts. But other than being in the Thor movie in 2011, and I didn't even see her other appearance in Thor in 2013, she's largely been off the radar since 1999 when she was in the Thomas Crown Affair Mm -hmm. remake and the Lethal Weapon 4 movie with Mel Gibson in 1998. But she does really nail the desperation of Nina, this TV producer, without any scruples whatsoever. And it was just sort of a revelation to see her back on screen. We find our viewers are more interested in urban crime creeping into the suburbs. What that means is a victim or victims, preferably well off and white, injured at the hands of the poor or a minority. That's crime. No, accidents play, cars, buses, trains, planes, fires. A bloody. Well, graphic. 
The best and clearest way that I can phrase it to you, Lou, to capture the spirit of what we air, is think of our newscast as a screaming woman running down the street with her throat cut. The other surprise was Rachel McAdams in A Most Wanted Man, the John le Carré thriller starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. I've always thought Rachel McAdams is a solid actress. She's good on screen. I've never really hated her in anything, though I didn't really like her in Midnight in Paris. I think that was more Woody's problem from a screenplay standpoint, though, than her performance. But I just wouldn't put her in a movie where she has to sort of be the moral compass of the film and do it with an accent. Here, the movie's set in Hamburg, and she plays a human rights lawyer, and she does have a German accent. And it's pretty good, or at least it seems to be pretty good, but it's sort of theatrical just in that it's not her playing a variation on herself. And she's really good, as everyone is in that film. For number four, I've combined some new faces, people I'd never seen on screen before. Carrie Coon from Gone Girl already got a lot of attention when we did our top five discoveries of 2014. You mentioned Agatha Kulesha from Ida. You're right. This world that the Ida character walks into, her aunt is just this spark of energy in life in a world that is otherwise so austere. I do love that performance. Catherine Waterston in Inherent Vice, we disagreed on a little bit playing the mercurial Shasta Faye Hepworth. And then I really did like one of the child performances of this year, Mackenzie Foy from Interstellar, the daughter she was very to good. Matthew McConaughey. Yep. Really good. Movie loses a lot film. when she goes off the screen. I knew you had to get a dig in one way or another. My number three, the Character Actor Hall of Fame. J.K. Simmons is part of that from Whiplash. So he did sort of make my list. But Ben Mendelsohn, Startup, John yeah. Hawks from Life of Crime, and Mark Ruffalo from Foxcatcher. I think they should just be anointed. Let's go ahead and put them away at this point. When are any of these guys not good in a movie? I don't want Ruffalo set aside, though. I mean, okay. I, want, I want him to still get lead well, parts. that's a good point. I hope he does get some more lead performances. The others are all predominantly supporting performers. But the key to all these performances, really, Hawks not so much because he's just one of those guys who can play a bad guy that is still charming and you're rooting for somehow even when he does bad things. The other ones... There's a little bit of that element to them, but it's really all about, in these cases, Josh, their physicality that drive the performances more than anything with the dialogue. Simmons in Whiplash is just a blunt instrument. He's sharp. He's got these jagged edges. He's always trying to be in control. Ben Mendelsohn playing the father to Jack O'Connell in Startup is more chaotic. He's in this prison situation. He has a complete disregard for basically everyone around him, kind of swings his arms as he walks. He owns his space at every moment. And then you've got Ruffalo and Foxcatcher, we agreed on that, the best aspect of that film, where he just has complete confidence in who he is as a person, as a man, as a wrestler, and those stretches that he does with his brother Channing Tatum, those drills, the way they intermingle with each other, their physicality just conveys everything you need to know about their relationship. Who are you going to train with? No, no. I meant we, as in me and you, together, picking a team. Mr. DuPont and I would love to have you. Mark, what's, uh, what's he get out of all this? Mr. DuPont? Yeah. America, winning. You winning, we talked about you. Me winning. Okay. What are you, what are you thinking about, Dave? This is it. This is everything that we've, that we've ever wanted. Mark, I can't leave. I'm, I'm settled here. Nancy's happy. Tanner's doing well at school. They can come? Mark, 
I got a contract. I got commitments. You might have to see Exodus Gods and Kings now for Mendelssohn, you know? Really? Oh, he's just, he's gnawing away. Just gnawing away at <laughs> I that I said thing. that so enthusiastically, but there's no way I'm seeing <laughs> it's that. Kind of, he's kind of fun. I, mean, I bet he is. Yeah. <laughs> Joel Edgerton in that movie, too. He's doing the they same. They were together in Animal Kingdom, and I love Edgerton, so. They're both on the same maybe. wavelength. The rest of the people know. <laughs> okay, so we get to our top two, and I did limit myself to just two, because I had two clear standouts here. One, supporting actor. Who do you have at number two? So here's my other villain, and it's Toby Kebbell, who played Koba in Dawn of the Planet. Oh, yeah. The apes. In my mind, you know, the debate over whether or not motion capture performances are deserving of award recognition, that's already been given a one-man answer. His name is Andy Serkis for stuff like Gollum in Peter Jackson's Tolkien adaptations and as the ape leader Caesar in this rebooted franchise. But if you're still not sure about that, if you can't quite go that far and give an award to a motion capture performance, I offer Kebbell's turn here as Koba. He's the lead hunter for the ape colony that Caesar now oversees and the eventual betrayer of Caesar's plan for ape-human peace. Now, like Circus before him, Kebbell, he demonstrates how the use of voice, the use of pantomime and eye contact can communicate anything a traditional performance could. And my favorite example is the different ways Koba holds out his hand to Caesar. So early on, it's outstretched in in true submission. Just the way he holds his hand, you can see that he will follow Caesar and obey him. And then as things turn, you get just enough recalcitrance in the movement to suggest this simmering resentment. Now, on our Best of the Rest show, I picked a scene from Under the Skin for my most moving moment of 2014. But one of the contenders that I didn't get to mention is actually a scene with Kebble when Koba points to his many scars one by one and just grunts human work. Yeah. I mean, that that really works for this film. This new ape series, it's been all about getting us, the human audience, to turn to the side of the apes. And Kebbell's performance as this devious villain that we empathize with, it's crucial in making that happen. It is. He's a really good actor. I loved him in Dead Man's Shoes. He's in Control, the movie about Joy Division, a lot of other UK movies, and really a talented actor. I'm glad to see him get some love here on the show. My number two is from a film that I definitely have a lot of antipathy towards that has come out over the course of a few shows here fairly recently, but I love, love, love this performance. It's Edward Norton in Birdman. You know, the douchebag's born every minute. That was P.T. Barnum's premise when he invented the circus, and nothing much has changed. And you guys know that if you crank out any toxic piece of crap, people will line up and pay to see it. But long after you're gone, I'm going to be on that stage, earning my living, bearing my soul, wrestling with complex human emotions. Right. That's what we do. Oh, so that is that what tonight was about? You wrestling with complex emotion. Life was just about seeing if it's even alive, seeing if it can bleed. No, this isn't the backlot rigging. This is New York City. This is how we do things. He plays Mike Shiner, who is this sort of stereotypical, difficult New York City stage actor. Really talented, but the question becomes pretty quickly is he really worth it? He's this actor that's going to do things his way. He's always going to be pushing the envelope, trying to search for some kind of truth on stage. And I do think we react the same way to him that Michael Keaton's character does in the movie, which is that he just seems to be a guy who has too much of everything, too much intensity. He's a loose cannon. But then when he's on stage, when he does act opposite him, he falls for it, right? He wants him in the play immediately. He is seduced by the guy's talent. So Ed Norton... As this actor, they both bring the goods when they're on stage. And he does bring something truthful, something brash and arrogant, but also vulnerable that I think Norton really brings to the performance. 
I don't know, Josh, if I was an actor, if I'd want to co-star with someone like Mike Shiner or if I'd want to direct someone like Mike Shiner, but I know I like to watch actors like that perform on stage. Every night, you know, you're going to get something a little bit different or maybe a lot different. And this is going to come up a little bit as we get into lead performances in the next segment. There was a fair amount, at least for me, of good performances by actors who I felt like this year were playing against their type or playing with their type, having some fun with their personas, Ben Affleck and Gone Girl we Mm -hmm. talked about during that review, Michael Keaton in Birdman playing a version of himself, obviously. Norton, too, I think, is having some fun with his reputation as a difficult actor, as a difficult writer. And for me, he was the only thing, unfortunately, I really did believe, speaking of truth, in that entire movie. And I mentioned during the review, but any actor who can deliver a line like, I would want to pull the eyes out of your head and stick them in my skull and then look out at this street and see it the way I saw it when I was your age. That's a mouthful, and it's so pretentious. And yet, in that moment, I felt for him. I ached for him. There was a longing that Ed Norton brought to that character that, like I said, was not only something honest, but but really something that surprisingly moved me at times in that film. So, he also my number two. gave us what uh, was in the runner for me in the best fight scene. <laughs> yeah. He, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's a good scene. All right, my number one here is Patricia Arquette in Boyhood, my runaway choice for Best Supporting Actress of 2014. It's probably a bit odd that Arquette, for me, was the emotional core of boyhood. I mean, I've experienced boyhood firsthand, so certainly Richard Linklater's remarkable account of that phase of life registered strongly for me because of my own history. And what's more, I'm a father. So right there, my next go-to place of empathy would be the Ethan Hawke character, you would think. But when boyhood comes to mind, I think of Arquette's face, and I think of her character's journey. just the trajectory that she has as a mother of this kid. I'm going to say it sticks with me also because of the realistic forcefulness of Arquette's mm-hmm. performance. I mean, Eller Coltrane gets the job done as Mason, whose 12 years we experienced in something like real time. Hawk does Ethan Hawk to perfection, and we've talked about how we mean that as a compliment. Yes, we do. And Arquette, though, I mean, she's just the soul of this film. From the first moment that she picks Mason up, what is it, probably kindergarten, I think, to that last moment when she uh, sends him off to college in this sudden burst of, of It's a rage against time is what she gives us, another most moving moment of the year. I've used the term career performance for a few actors this year, Scarlett Johansson in Under the Skin, Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler, and I think this too does count as a career performance for Arquette. I'm with you was on several of my ballots and maybe would have been mentioned here if not for the fact that Boyhood has gotten so much attention. I did single out Arquette and Ethan Hawke both on our Best of the Rest show as sort of actors and actresses I think we kind of take for granted. I don't know that we fully appreciate him, and Boyhood allowed us to appreciate both of them a little bit more. My number one supporting performance of the year, though, is Tilda Swinton in Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer. She plays a bureaucrat named Mason. Name Mason because as I found out doing a little bit of research today that I didn't do back when we reviewed it, it was originally envisioned as a male role, just like a man in a suit okay. was supposed to be this character. But she really wanted to be in this movie. She's friends with Bong. And of course she is. Of course she is, <laughs> right? They hang out all the time. <laughs> and they found a way for her to play this part instead. And basically her job is just to keep the masses in line aboard this train that's just circling this post-apocalyptic world endlessly. And she's trying to maintain some kind of order here in this makeshift civilization. Happy you Years ago today, you people who have 
suckled the generous titty of Woodford ever since for food and shelter. And now, in front of our hallowed water supply section, no less, you repay his kindness with violent hooliganism. You scum. And it's funny. I found an interview with her today, Josh, where she talked about how she kind of envisioned the role. And she said that she started to think about dictators. What's the most sinister thing about dictators, actually, is the way in which, with a little bit of hindsight, or even at the time, we turn them into clowns. We end up finding them rather endearing and hilarious. So I was thinking of monstrous clowns and thinking that that might be a way of disrupting this mild-mannered man in a suit. It would be nice to throw a different shape. She certainly succeeds in throwing a different shape on this dictator character and yes there's a little bit of margaret thatcher in there too that she's channeling but when you talk about the tone of a movie like snowpiercer it's absurdly funny definitely satirical but it's also dark and serious and dramatic and i think the heart of it is swinton's performance i was talking about rachel mcadams earlier and how she never struck me as one of those actresses i'd cast in anything remotely theatrical there's some performers who just can't pull that off Tilda Swinton is maybe the definition of an actress who can pull that type of theatricality off as she does here because wearing those glasses and the hair and the bad teeth and those suits, she owns it in a way that it far exceeds any kind of grandstanding, has nothing to do with her trying to draw attention to herself. It is in service of the story all the time with Tilda Swinton. Yeah, this this is the movie for her to go full Tilda Swinton, right? right? Because that's what the movie is doing. The movie is crazy and all over the place and big and erratic. uh, And it works, primarily it worked for me for that film. So for her to do this, be big, be sort of the Tilda Swinton we think of Mm -hmm. first maybe that comes to our mind is a perfect fit. It's wonderful that we also have something like Only Lovers Left Alive this year to compare that this isn't all she does or can do. Exactly. Another performance, much more subdued and laid back that I do really, really appreciate. And if you take away anything from the year in movies, again, know your place. Keep your place. Be a shoe, Josh. You tell me that all the time. Be a shoe. So much for the supporting turns. Our favorite lead performances of 2014 are up next. If you listen closely, Adam, you can hear Robert Pattinson singing Pretty Girl Rock. Lord help me. Stay with us. Late night call and I'm at your door Teenage tears on the kitchen floor I pull you close, hold my breath Feel your heart beat through your summer dress Shuffle our feet slowly to the stereo your boyfriend suddenly appears if your father comes home and finds us here you and i we won't need an alibi it's on the dancing it's on the dancing Josh, of course, we have been away for a little bit here from the show due to the holidays and due to the overwhelming generosity of our listeners around the holidays. We have 
a fairly sizable number of donations to get to. A few notes from our listeners. We really do want to share those and express our gratitude. First, though, a couple other notes. Mention the music we're featuring this week on the show, Minneapolis-based Jeremy Messersmith, songs from his 2014 album Heart Murmurs. You heard the songs It's Only Dancing and Ghost. No current tour information to share, but you can get more information about his music at jeremymessersmith.com. I also got a couple of Christmas presents in the mail. I call them Christmas presents because it's fine, critical work from one colleague, Peter Labuza, and also a critic who I only know via Twitter, Tina Hassania. She has published a book. She's written a book, Osgar Farhadi, Life and Cinema, and it's the December 2014 release just came out from the Critical Press. And, of course, listeners of the show who followed us through our Iranian Cinema Marathon. And Back our when we were of, doing marathons. Exactly. And A Separation, one of his recent films. You know that we're big fans of his work. And Tina has written the first English language book about the Iranian film icon. So I wanted to highlight that book and mention our friend Peter Labuza again Longtime listener of the show, back when he was barely able to drive himself to school. He's been listening since he was eight, right? Pretty much. Okay. He's that young. He is young buck Peter Labuza, as I like to call him, hosted the Cinephiliacs podcast and an editor with Masters of Cinema. His book, Approaching the End, Imagining Apocalypse in American Film, that came out in October. It was, I believe, the Critical Press's first publication. Very nice. So congratulations to Tina and to Peter. And if you want to learn more about those books, maybe purchase them thecriticalpress.com. Let's get to our donors, Josh. We start with three platinum-level donors. Those are Brig from San Francisco, Kevin from Chicago, and Laura from Dade City, Florida. Kevin, one of my students in my Roger Ebert class this past summer at the University of Chicago, already gave me the fine gift of being present in my class. Paid his tuition. Paid his tuition. now he's donating. Now he's donating to the show. Unbelievable. And Laura, there in Dade City, Florida, says, just sent a small donation and expression of my thanks for your weekly intelligent conversation and enthusiasm about films, even if you occasionally get it wrong. Must be thinking of you. to you. Yeah, to you, Josh. I don't get a chance to go to the movies very often, but when I do, I don't want my time wasted. Listening to you helps me choose wisely. Getting online and seeing a few films helps, too. Without you, I would not have seen Blue Ruin, Under the Skin, or Startup, which should have won the Golden Brick. Mm. I listen going to and from work. A desolate ride without you is company. I was in Chicago a few weeks ago and thought about going to WBEZ to see where the magic happens, <laughs> but then thought the better of it. Sometimes it's better to let your imagination fill in the blanks. Good decision, Laura. I think Mr. Turner says in the movie, there's the majesty of mystery. And long may it remain so. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you for those great donations. We also got a gold-level donation from Nora in Los Angeles, Deborah in Philadelphia, and Nicholas in Pasco, Washington. We also have $10 a month donations from Bernard. He's in Gross Point Park, Michigan. Joseph in San Rafael, California. And Ian Bushner, not far away from Chicago here in Naperville. Now, and Ian, a month or so ago, sent us an email asking for some advice because he's got two daughters, four and seven, and two younger sons. He's trying to instill in his family a love of film by showing them Miyazaki movies and wanted some other recommendations from us. And I went to Sam, who has done an amazing job of raising a young cinephile in Dave Van Halgren. Mm -hmm. Of course, Film Spotting Junior. He's got his Junior. own little film school yeah, his going own, there. his own franchise. I keep trying to bring <laughs> him into the fold and he's just not accepting any of our offers. And I said, Sam, what do you recommend? He said, you can, should just recommend the Ty Burr book and the title is escaping me now. I'll link to it in our show notes. But Sam says, with four and seven-year-old daughters, MGM musicals, starting with Meet Me in St. Louis, and The Silent, starting with Buster Keaton, Go West, and Seven Chances. We get asked this a lot, so I thought it'd be worth 
putting this out there in this segment. Sam also says, then Chaplin, the gold rush. So we sent that to Ian. He was grateful. He got back to us recently and said that he started with Singing in the Rain for MGM Musicals. The girls loved it. Once they had that down, I thought, why not try The Artist? After all, it's got the same plot as Singing in the Rain. It seems to have worked out so far. They love that as well. He's expanding to other MGM musicals and silent films now. With a monthly injection of Miyazaki, the latest The Wind Rises continues the trend of animated hits. Yeah, you can't go wrong with musicals and Miyazaki for the kids. I tried Dr. Mabuse the Gambler. (laughs) You would. (laughs) Well, it's like six hours long or something, so I had to get some of it done during the day. Yeah. They were kind of into it. Maybe later. What was the first movie... In our Marx Brothers marathon, oh, the boy. one we really didn't like, or at least uh, I really well, didn't like. Was it like. Animal Crackers? Did we start? It might with have that? been. It's of course you revered tried that with and the a whole classic. Family? I tried to show that to Holden and Sophie, and no they're go. never going to trust me again. Well, you know, they might be onto something. <laughs> Maybe. Don't dig us in a hole here. We're thanking our listeners here, Josh. A five dollar a month donation comes from Suzanne in Alameda, California. Just wanted to thank you for another year of great shows. I started listening to the podcast almost six years ago now and count on film spotting to reassure or challenge my takes on films. As a long ago film student now working in the museum world, I love having film spotty to come home to. I work at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and I'm happy to say that when we reopen in 2016, we will more than double our film program and look forward to working even more closely with the great San Francisco Film Society. Many thanks to you and your crew, guest hosts, and other listeners whose takes are frequently brilliant. Happy holidays in 2015. We're going to hear a little bit more from Suzanne in our bonus content. We're going to get her film of the year, not boyhood, not boyhood. So brave moves. Yeah, indeed. Silver Club donors, Annette in Frankfurt, Germany, Jonathan, Bloomington, Indiana, Jeffrey here in Chicago, Alexandria, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, my old stomping grounds, Jonas in West Roxbury, Massachusetts, Andrus in Culver City, California, and Ambrosia Fisher in Menlo Park, California, who has a note for us. Happy holidays from the Bay Area. I have had the pleasure of listening to your podcast for the past two years, and I felt guilty for not sending a much-deserved contribution to the hard work that you create week to week. As I am knee-deep in the holiday spirit, I have sent a one-time donation with hope of becoming a monthly donator at some point. As a movie lover, I appreciate a good, thoughtful discussion about movies, and your podcast has given me that and so much more. I have a toddler at home, so I am often late to seeing movies, but my absolute favorite thing to do is to re-listen to your podcast after I viewed a movie that you guys have talked about. Listening to your discussions always brings a new perspective that I really appreciate. You have turned me towards movies that would not have been on my radar. The Act of Killing is an example of that. About a year ago, I discovered your archives on the site, and I went through each episode and downloaded at least 100 to enjoy over the many hours I spend commuting. All the best to you, your families, and all those who contribute to the success of FilmSpot. Wow, 100 archived episodes. I hope that lasts you a little while, Ambrosia. You need a little bit of a break from our voices. And then we'll have 400 more for you. (laughs) We will. Bucka Show donors, Kate in Brooklyn, New York, who says she's been listening since episode 168 and never misses an episode. And our friend Robert Lewis in Damascus, Maryland, who says, Boyhood, remember I invoked Uh his... He's the scoffer. Yeah, he scoffs at Boyhood, just really doesn't get it. And even after listening to me and Michael... And Scott, rave about it. Our number one film of the year, he says, is just going to have to be one of those films that I don't get. Wow. Sticking by it. He's sticking by it. Brett Marmo in Edinburgh, Scotland also sent us this brief note. Hi, guys. Thanks for another great year of podcasting. I've had a wonderful year personally with the arrival of a baby daughter, Matilda, but she has completely ruined my movie going to the point that I only saw 10 films this year. Kids do that. With so few opportunities to get to the cinema, your reviews have been even more important to me than usual. For what it's worth, my 2014 favorites were number one, Under the Skin, then Boyhood, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Interstellar, 
and Gone Girl. We'll get to the rest of his choices, some honorable mentions there in our bonus content as well, and a little bit more on Under the Skin from Brett. Our final donors we want to thank Peter, Brooklyn, New York, Derek, Chicago, Chris in Deerfield, Illinois, James in Montreal, Quebec, Glenn in Sacramento, California, and Steve in Wixom, Michigan. He says, it's the least I can do until I appear on your top 10 show a few years down the road to boast about the new Drake Doremus film. Um, it has breathe in the title. It was reviewed here on the show. Did we review ringing it? ringing any bells for me. Drake Doremus, I can't remember the name of the film. I can't believe it. I'm drawing a total blank. Sound, was it a Michael Phillips pick? No. Possibly. It was reviewed here on the show and stars the woman from The Theory of Everything, Felicity Jones. Okay. Jennifer Lawrence is in it. Oh. I think Anton Yelchin is in it. Huh. This is all just... What year are we talking here? Oh, a couple of years, a couple okay. of years ago. But I don't know what Steve's particular affection for Drake Doremus is. Maybe, maybe they're buddies. He will enlighten us on this future Top Ten show. He'll have to do that. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, everybody, for your kind notes and, again, your generosity throughout the past few weeks and through the entire year of 2014. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Greetings, Film Spotting Original Recipe listeners. This is Matt Singer from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit inviting you to check out our latest episode where Allison Wilmore and I discuss the British television series Black Mirror, which was recently added to Netflix. And inspired by Black Mirror, we'll also recommend some films about technophobia that you can rent or stream at home right now. Plus, we're like 90% sure that the podcast doesn't contain a weird alien signal that will turn you into a drooling, cell phone-obsessed zombie, so enjoy. To listen to the podcast, you can subscribe in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Hi, everybody. This is John Michael McDonough, the director of The Guard and the new movie Calvary, and you are listening to Film Spotting. What's it like? Like, what does it actually feel like? Mm, well, it's not always the same. You know, I have, uh, I have good days, bad days, and on my good days, I can, you know, almost pass for a normal person. But on my bad days, I feel like I can't find myself. Um, I've always been so defined by my intellect, my language, my articulation, and now sometimes I can see the words hanging in front of me and I can't reach them and I don't know who I am and, and I don't know what I'm going to lose next. Julianne Moore there in a scene from the new movie Still Alice, a film that just opened this past weekend in Chicago. Josh is playing in select cities now. And I caught up with this movie in preparation for this list as we are highlighting our favorite lead performances of 2014. Because as it turns out, if you do any Google searching, you come across any of those awards sites, she really seems to be the front runner right now. She's the odds on favorite. Yeah, for okay. best actress. So I thought I at least need to see what all the fuss is about. And the movie's fine. And she's really good in it, but I think Julianne Moore is pretty much always good. And I get that there's a bit of an Oscar-type buzz to this, just in the fact that she is playing a woman who suffers from early-onset Alzheimer's. And I think one of the strengths of the movie is that it could have gone down some 
somewhat exploitative paths and trying to be very grim and how it used her illness to generate suspense Mm -hmm. and fear. And it doesn't really do that. It's a smart movie and a well-made movie. And Julianne Moore is really good in it. Not for me, a performance though, Josh, that was so revelatory that it could crack my top five. We're going to get to those picks here in just a second. Quickly though, recap our favorite supporting performances of the year, Josh, you had. I had Gary Poulter in Joe, Agatha Kulesha in Ida, the return of Rene Russo in Nightcrawler, Toby Kebbell further legitimizing motion capture performances as Koba in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and my number one supporting performance of the year, Patricia Arquette as the mother in Boyhood. I had in my number five slot some familiar faces who surprised me, Rene Russo in Nightcrawler, Rachel McAdams in A Most Wanted Man. Number four, some new faces people never seen before, some of them making their big screen debut, Carrie Coon in Gone Girl, Catherine Waterston in Inherent Vice also on the list. My number three slot was my character actor Hall of Fame. It included Ben Mendelsohn from Startup, Mark Ruffalo from Foxcatcher. My number two supporting turn, Ed Norton in Birdman and number one, Tilda Swinton in Snowpiercer. For our radio listeners, if you want to hear our full picks and our takes on those picks, you can find the show at filmspotting.net or via iTunes. It's episode 520. That brings us back to lead performances. Your number five. All right, five and four real quick here. Five is Elizabeth Moss in Listen Up, Philip. My favorite thing about that movie is how it opened up to allow her to have a lead performance. I mean, traditionally, this would be a supporting performance, but it really does blossom into a lead, and she justifies that leap of faith on the part of writer-director Alex Ross Perry. My number four, Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler. The sociopath is entrepreneur. <laughs> That's basically what Nightcrawler is, and he is really good. He's so good, Josh, that he's part of my number five trio here. A little bit of cheating just for these five and four slots here. And the way I divided it, I've got a group of men and a group of women who basically, I would argue, are at the tops of their game right now. So starting with the men, if you had told me three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, that the three movie stars, male movie stars, who I'd basically be so enthralled by at the moment— all their recent choices, their recent performances, maybe not every single performance, but enough of them. Right. That there's a body of work that I can't wait to see what they do next. That Those three names would be Matthew McConaughey, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Joaquin Phoenix. I would have said, hmm. you're crazy. But especially now that I look back on this year, I see Joaquin Phoenix in Inherent Vice following The Master, another Paul Thomas Anderson film. I see Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler and McConaughey in Interstellar. Those are the three for me. I think that... Yeah, I can't argue with that. Yeah, McConaughey's charisma... It's very understated in Interstellar, but I do think he grounds the insanity of that movie. Phoenix and Gyllenhaal are actors who just continue to stretch out. Gyllenhaal, a guy who is sort of shedding successfully that leading man's skin, he's becoming a little bit more of a shapeshifter like Phoenix. Again, something I never would have predicted happening, but love all three of those performances. That's a relief because for a minute there, I thought you were going to go with Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck didn't quite make the as cut. Good as, as good as yeah, he is in I Gone think he's Girl, good in but, Gone Girl. Okay, he's an honorable good. mention for me, Josh. Oh. The women at the top of their game, I have two of them. Jennifer Lawrence in The Hunger Games, The Mockingjay Part 1, and Marion Cotillard from the Dardenne's film, Two Days, One Night. And I was thinking about this. I really picked them just because they're two of my favorite female lead roles of the year. But if you compare them a little bit, you've got one badass action hero versus the woman in Two Days, One Night who has to go door to door begging coworkers to choose her job over their own bonus or even look at a movie like the immigrant from this year with james gray both of those roles kotiar is a victim she's playing a woman who is struggling through no fault of her own but she does find a way to imbue these characters with a sense of dignity and with some strength 
And I wonder, tell me if I'm crazy here, if not for the 15-year age difference between Lawrence and Cotillard and Katniss Everdeen having to be a young character, why couldn't you switch him? Doesn't Lawrence have the chops to play these complex, dramatic figures that Cotillard is making a name for playing and is so good at playing? And doesn't Cotillard have the chops and the range to be believable as an action hero? One, I think, as well with the emotional heft that Jennifer Lawrence brings to her roles, I think. Yeah, I'm with you. Absolutely. They both could do it. That's how talented they are. And you can say about every movie that came out this year or any other year that they depend largely on their performers and certainly largely on their protagonists, those lead performances. But of all the movies in 2014, I think these two in particular depend more than any others because these characters, these actresses are in virtually every frame and their ability to evoke empathy as Katniss, as Sandra in the Dardenne's film is everything. It's crucial to those films and those films' success, and they are successful films. All right, number three, I have Jack O'Connell in Startup. And we raved about this performance in our review of the film. This is the one where he plays a youth offender in the British prison system who's moved ahead of time into an adult facility. But a recent O'Connell performance that I saw put that one in a different light and his talent in a different light, too. It's the Angelina Jolie directed Unbroken, which opened on Christmas Day. It's somewhat of a similar role. This is based on the true story of a captured American bombardier who suffered in a Japanese POW camp during World War II. But O'Connell gives a startlingly different performance, even though the milieu is somewhat the same. In Unbroken, he has, it's one of resolve and exhaustion at the same time. Startup, you know, it's this ferocity and then this shadowed insecurity going on underneath there. Both, though, are remarkably physical. Similar to Tom Hardy, he uses his body to do most of his acting work. And in fact, in Unbroken, that's one of the ways that he cuts through the film's considerable hokum that goes on. He gives us the movie's only real sense of authenticity, especially He's so often shuddering from the cold or shaking from the blows. He embodies the suffering that we see. Most of the cast around him, you know, they're acting it out. You can see when he's lined up with all these other prisoners, they're acting it out. He's embodying it. So we feel the cold, the wet, and the bruises because of him. So what he's doing in Startup is at an even higher level. That's why I put that performance at the top of the year for me. And I'm just really eager to follow O'Connell's career. I am too. It's a great pick and honorable mention for me. My number three, I was going through scenes to try to pick out to support this actor. And I found that this actor was largely being supported in some key scenes by my two favorite supporting performers of the year, Ed Norton and Tilda Swinton. They appear alongside Ray Fiennes as Monsieur Gustav in Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, the movie that I was the odd man out on on our end of year roundtable. The only one who didn't have it in his top 10 had it really nowhere near my top 10. But I love this Fiennes performance. He is such an amazing contradiction. He's arrogant, if not selfish. He's at least you could say somewhat hedonistic. He really has devoted his life to kind of pampering himself and getting what he wants. He likes the finer things. He does. But he's also devoted his whole life to serving others. And He's a man of such gravitas that he can talk to the police, in this case, Edward Norton, kind of a Gestapo-type member, I guess, and talk to him in a professional, official manner, then turn around and scamper away. How may we serve you, gentlemen? Ah, Inspector Hank. By order of the Commissioner of Police of Broca Province, I hereby place you under arrest for the murder of Madame Celine Villeneuve de Goffin Taxis. I knew there was something fishy. We never got the cause of death. She's been murdered. And you think I did it. Hey! And it's hilarious. It really is one of the funnier <laughs> beats in the movie. 
And I couldn't burrow my way through the artifice and the unwieldy plot of this movie overall, but there was nothing artificial about Fiennes' Gustav. He did bring real weight to that character. And I think the movie really needed it in that lead role. I might have been alone, as I recall us talking about it, in seeing predominantly an Archer's influence on Grand Budapest Hotel. I saw a lot of Powell and Pressburger in the movie, but Fine seems to me right out of the Anton Walbrook hmm. playbook from The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, from The Red Shoes even. He's playing this refined, sophisticated, serious man, in this case, though, in an unserious world, which is Wes Anderson's world, but also the world he's depicting, 1930s Europe and all the changes that are going on politically there. He does have a great sense of humor that I don't know that we see come through so much in some of those Walbrook performances, just because it's not asked of him. It's certainly asked of Ray Fiennes here, and he brings it. Well, you know, I was watching scenes from this as well recently for reasons I'll get to, and maybe it would have worked the movie overall more for you if Fiennes had showed up sooner, because it takes a while. It's a good, I want to say, maybe even 15 minutes into the film. That's a good point. And if he had been able to charm you from the start, maybe so. it would have brought you along. Maybe so. At number two, I have Essie Davis from The Babadook. I'm so glad I managed to fit The Babadook in during my year-end onslaught of viewing because not only did the film itself end up on my top ten list, but Essie Davis's performance here as a distraught, haunted single mother is one of my favorites of the year. There's a real trajectory to this character, and it goes far beyond the, what, what's the horror movie question for a heroine usually? Will she survive? Is she going to make it, right? Mm-hmm. And there's just so much more going on here, and Davis sells every step. We get her exhaustion at the beginning when she has this difficult child who suffers from night terrors. That really girds this fantastical movie in reality at the start, which is necessary. And then she becomes more of the victim when things take a turn for the worse. And her son, who's played by Noah Wiseman, uh, he becomes almost this demon child. So she has that victim role thrust upon her. Later on in the film, there's what you could call the possession segment, and she seems to have been taken over by an evil force, and she's just she's terrifying yeah. there. You become scared of her, that her parental distress curdles into something really evil. And then we get that final segment of her as the warrior mother, where she faces down this monster of the title, and there's this alarming burst of maternal ferocity. We really get the full fury of a woman defending her child. And, you know, the brilliance of this movie is what she's really doing is defending her child against her own psychological demons mm-hmm. at the same time. So Essie Davis, just one of the many elements that elevates the Babadook for She's me. really good. She's fantastic. That's a great choice. My number two is, speaking of, as we were earlier in the show, playing with personas a little bit, Scarlett Johansson in Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. That really was a big part, at least near the end of my conversation with the director, Jonathan Glazer, when he was here on the show earlier in the year, recognizing Scarlett Johansson's status as a sexual icon, playing in this movie a sexual predator in some ways, I think you could call her. And she's a woman, as an actress, largely objectified on screen, playing a character here who wields male desire as her primary weapon. So the movie certainly is well aware of Scarlett Johansson's status in quote-unquote real life or away from the screen and on the screen and is using that to great effect in this film. Our friends over at The Dissolve, they listed Scarlett Johansson among their favorite female performances of the year and said this, Johansson's unnamed femme fatale is under the skin's point of view character, but while virtually everything is seen through her eyes, the window to her soul stays firmly shut for nearly a full hour in order to convey the sense that this creature's consciousness is entirely and truly alien. There's an unnerving moment early on in which Johansson, who's sometimes interacting with non-actors who have no idea 
idea who she is or even that they're being filmed, really turns on the charm, trying to persuade a young man to get into her van. When the guy steps away, she instantly goes blank, as if she were a robot that had been remotely switched off. A less confident actor would have opted to telegraph what the alien is feeling, especially once her-slash-its existential crisis kicks in. Johansson shrewdly, defiantly reveals nothing. I think that's very well stated. And one of my objections previously to some of her recent performances to Johansson was I always got a sense that she was a little bit too self-conscious on screen. There was something I found unnatural about her performances. And here in playing an alien, ironically, <laughs> she's the most natural she's ever been. I also loved her in her last year, that Spike Jones movie, but she's just as effortless on screen here as she's ever been without being vacant, without being a kind of blank slate. She is a figure who is clearly taking these experiences in and is processing it in some way that's unfolding before our eyes, whether she, whether the alien wants it to or not. And that willingness or that ability on Johansson's part to reveal nothing and in doing so reveal everything, allowing the audience to see the world through her eyes. That's really the key to that whole movie for me. And also mentioned there in that segment from The Dissolve, that notion of acting against those non-professional actors sometimes in scenes where they didn't even know they were being filmed. I think you see her turn on a certain seductive charm, but it's always unique to what the person in the scene is giving her. It's clear that Johansson didn't come in with sort of a set bullet points. Yeah. I'm going to play this guy up this way. She's reacting. She's responding in those scenes to what she's being given. And that's one of the reasons it's a fantastic performance. Yeah, that, that's interesting you say that because she does a much better job of working with the non-professionals, I think, than Nicolas Cage does in Joe. I, I think mm-hmm. that's a good performance by Cage, but they're... There's clearly some sort of wall. There's there's a cageness that he still has <laughs> in his scenes. You can't you can't escape you, the cage. You can't. I mean, uh, but you know, and and it does fall away. To be fair to him, in the scenes with Ty Sheridan or other actors, but when he's with the non-professionals, there's just a distance between them that there is not in the Johansson for sure. Now, do you think? I don't, it it doesn't really matter. But do you think this film is just too small for her to be considered for? An Unfortunately. Oscar? I mean, yeah. I think it. I think and it a little bit too is. distancing or off-putting. Well, yeah, and then you get to the fact of a lot of times you hear about vote Oscar voters who don't even finish what they're you know if right. they don't if it doesn't hook. It's them, a challenging movie. It's a challenging movie is the polite way to say it. Yeah, but worth <laughs> your time for sure. Definitely rewarding. Number one, you already had them, so you're Ray Fines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a wonderful, hilarious, and revelatory performance. I, I didn't. No, he had this in him, you know, this this sort of comic verve and speed, a fleet of footness. It's just such a blast to watch. And I, you know, you talked about Anton Walbrook. For me, what I thought of was uh, the sort of performance we used to get regularly in Hollywood's screwball comedy heyday. It has that. It's breathlessly funny, but somehow just immaculately precise. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you break down every line reading of his, not only to hit the joke, but but to get everything in in time and, and to respond to who he's acting with. Yeah. It's just precision is a good way in, to phrase it. Yeah. yeah. And in addition to all the uh, the steps that Anderson makes mm-hmm. his actors go through to be in the right spot at the exact right time. So and it's just dripping with personality, too. You know that those screwball comedians had that personality just oozes maybe from that's the it josh actually is that one of my problems with that movie is maybe that sense of it being all a little bit too stifled and over calculated and somehow despite the precision finds brings 
it doesn't feel that way to me. His performance is the one thing that bounds beyond that. Yeah, yeah, no, I can see that for sure. And you talked about the the narcissistic center to this character of M. Gustav, and we also talked about this year how Wes Anderson specializes in narcissistic characters. But what I like about this film is how that narcissism is broken down as Gustav develops a paternal sort of relationship with his faithful lobby boy, Zero. And Tony Revolori in this performance, the more I see of it, it's a really good straight man part that he pulls off. I appreciate it more each time I watch that film. So finds here, you know, he's giving a performance that is, as you said, perfectly at home in Anderson's very contrived world. Yet it also harks back to these acting styles we've both talked about from previous eras. And that's that's just right for a film that's very much about uh, the bittersweet nostalgia over things that are no longer with us. My number one, I wish... I could come up with something new to say, something interesting to say. I've kind of said it all, Josh, especially as we got to our top 10 films of the year. This is a performance from my number four film of the year, the movie Locke, the performance Tom Hardy as the main character, Ivan Locke. He's a construction manager, and we see him for 95 minutes or so behind the wheel of his SUV driving, talking on the phone. I joked on that top 10 show that that old adage about finding an actor so interesting that you'd watch them read the phone book. Well, that's kind of what you're getting with Ivan Locke and Tom Hardy here. And boy, does he make it worth it. Clearly, as well, Josh, based on my top two picks here, Scarlett Johansson and Under the Skin and Tom Hardy and Locke, I really have a thing for actors who spend most of their movies just behind a steering around. wheel. Just yes. put an actor behind a car. They've I'm going to rave. Hey, I love Ryan Gosling and Drive, too. So maybe there's something there you to go. it. I'm just infatuated with, with cars. Steve McQueen, Bullet, my all-time favorite performance. <laughs> but... Maybe this is a little bit more of a stretch, but talking about those performers this year who are having some fun with their personas, Tom Hardy is this guy as Bane, as Bronson. I see him as this tough guy. He's a huge screen presence. Very he's physical. He's a huge, yeah, very physical, masculine presence. And here he's emasculated in a way simply by his director putting him behind the wheel of a car for 90 minutes and saying... You can't really be physical. You can't bring that physicality to this performance. I'm going to rein you in. But as I've said, I feel like that's what brings it so much energy is he's like this caged animal strapped into his car by his seatbelt. Hello, can I speak to Gareth, please? He's not back yet. Um, can I ask who's calling? Ivan Locke. Can I say what it's regarding? Uh, yes, concrete. Can you, um, can you tell him if it's urgent? Can you tell him to call me back? Yeah, does he have your number? Uh, yes. Yes, he does. Sorry, what was your name again? Ivan Locke. Something about concrete? That's right, yes. Can you, uh... Will he know what? Uh, no. No, he won't. Uh, something has come up and I need to tell people it's urgent. Sorry, what? I said, I said it's urgent. Very urgent. Thank you. And yeah, it's a little bit of a gimmick, if you will. There's something theatrical to it in that you're watching a guy with the camera on him the whole time. He's the only actor other than the people he's talking to. He's the only face we see on screen. But this huge range of emotions comes out. And Josh, trying to put myself in that driver's seat, if I was having to act, let's just pretend I had any shred of talent whatsoever. As an actor there, you can't keep going to the same mannerisms. You, you can't know, keep going to Edwin. Yeah. No, you can't, unfortunately. <laughs> if you could, you know, I'd be a millionaire by now and off the show. But seriously, you can't just keep going to your same ticks, to that bag of tricks, finding certain mannerisms to convey a certain feeling or emotion. He's on a journey, literally, in this movie. And his performance, I think, is a journey. He's constantly adding to, 
things we've seen before. He's refining it. He's not repeating himself. He likes to roll his sleeves up, which I love because it's, again, this idea that he's always getting to work. He's trying to really dig in and get to work. But again, he's stifled in this car seat. And our friend Dana Stevens over at Slate, she nailed it in her review talking about Hardy. She said his nimble, precise, beautifully modulated performance turns what could have felt like a stagey stunt into an elegant vocal and facial ballet. That's it. And that ballet for me was one of the real thrills of the year. So Tom Hardy will have to be my Ray Fiennes. I, I did admire the performance, just couldn't Not go for the film. Yep, that is true. Much to my chagrin, I wish you were on board with Locke as much as I was, Josh. Those are our top five performances of 2014. Any others you want to sneak in, honorable mentions? Yeah, let's see here. Some that were under the supporting acting category. My Inherent Vice performance that I really liked was Joanna Newsom. Yeah, she's great. Loved the role she has there as sort of the narrator. Uh, Dakota Fanning I thought was good in Night Moves. We talked about Marion Bailey in our review of Mr. Turner. And in terms of lead performances, boy, I think we covered a lot of them except for Guy Pierce in The Rover. I mean, really anchors that <laughs> yeah, wonderful darn. thing. <laughs> How did we overlook Guy <laughs> Pierce in The Rover? Speaking of movies that one of us just can't get on board with and actors behind steering wheels. That's true. For a good chunk of the movie. So you love got actors come, you've too. You've got to come around in The Rover, <laughs> I know. Adam. What went wrong with that movie <laughs> for me? I could list probably 20 more names. Don't worry. I will not. I'm going to limit it to a few more. And I've got a group. We've got to cap it at 64. Yeah, we do. Some new faces. You name two of them who were among my favorite lead performances of the year. Jack O'Connell in Startup, and Essie Davis in The Babadook. I'm with you completely on that performance. Some others, though, Macon Blair in our Golden Brick mm. winner, Blue Ruin, Agata Trebukovska in Ida, and Lisa Lovin-Kongsley in Force Majeure, which is probably the best foreign language film of the year. At least it was highest on my list, and she is the wife, she's the wife. Okay. in Force yeah, Majeure. Yeah, she's good. Really, really good. good want to see her in more films. The last two I'll mention, you had Elizabeth Moss for Listen Up, Philip. I'm with you there. And I'll pair her with her co-star in The One I Love, another movie we split on. I love Mark Duplass in that movie. And now yeah. I'm, a big, I'm a big Mark Duplass guy, but he's playing, I think I can say, do you like, a do sort you like of dual Do you like all the Mark Duplasses in that movie? Or? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I That's love, what wows you. Is, I, is love, the, I love the, the subtle... The shades, oh the shades of nuance to oh Mark Duplass boy. that really come with just the right haircut. <laughs> and glasses. And Does glasses. It, yeah. He's he's Superman. <laughs> <laughs> I love Mark Duplass, and I feel no shame for it, Josh. Again, those are our top five performances of 2014. Send us your picks or any other comments about the show. Which were your favorite performances with people driving a lot? Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting and at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Opening in limited release, the movie just named by the National Society of Film Critics, somewhat surprisingly, is the number one film of the year, though it's highly critically regarded. Goodbye to language, Godard and trois de. Did I say that right? Well, I don't even know trois what that d. means. It is 3D. That was perfect. Okay, thank you. It's playing at the Gene Siskel Film Center. I really hope we can get to that movie, if not review it here on the show. Yes, Godard doing a 3D movie. At the Music Box, Predestination, our guy Ethan Hawke is a temporal agent who time travels to prevent future killers from committing their crimes. Once again, just doing Ethan Hawke. Probably. So does that and mean that's enough he's for me. going to the past, though, right? Sounds like it. He's going to the past to prevent the future. Yeah, it's sort of looper. I don't need this. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Leviathan is also about this is a movie from Russia about the unraveling of a new country. This movie got a lot of critical acclaim here at the end of the year as well. Hope to catch up with it. Inherent Vice. We reviewed it back in December when it opened in New York and L.A., I think December 12th. Yeah, Finally right. opening this weekend here in Chicago and I'm sure in other select cities as well. If you want to seek out that review, it was episode 517 at filmspotting.net or via iTunes. We do recommend that movie, my number five film of 2014. In wide release, Taken 3, starring Liam Neeson and his particular set of skills. Are we sure this movie hasn't already come out? We're not sure. Okay. <laughs> Selma also expanding. It opened January 1st in Chicago, but expanding nationwide this weekend. This is the movie about Martin Luther King's organization of the 1965 Selma to Montgomery March. That is our plan right now, Josh, to discuss Selma next week on the show. Speaking of movies critically acclaimed, getting a lot of love on lists and various critics groups here at the end of the year. We're going to finally catch up with it, review it next week on the show. Our top five to be announced. Maybe we can have a little bit of an on-air show meeting okay sam and i kicking around a few ideas one of them biographical performances Ooh. we could also go with movies about historical events so oh, not okay. really wars or right, even right. battles we'll kind of leave those out but movies that really do focus on kind of the process behind one big thing yeah, i like that like i like so that a lot i mean okay. don't subject me to a week of biopics it's probably my <laughs> least enough. favorite genre we are of course open to other ideas you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net filmspotting is produced by golden joe deso and sam van hogren without sam and golden joe this show wouldn't go thanks to associate producer candace griffiths and the listeners of the film spotting advisory board and special thanks to everyone at chicago public media chicago public media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community our nation and our world more information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org our music this week comes from Jeremy Messersmith. It's from his 2014 album, Heart Murmurs. You can find more information at jeremymessersmith.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.